This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! That is a great question. I, I agree, this seems very out of place. Well, I guess when even your characters are incredulous at what is happening, you might have taken a bit of a misstep. So yeah, this is the Not Quite Daily Show, Spring 2018, Episode 9. Um, we're talking about Darling of the Franks Episode 20 today, which was quite surprising and not necessarily in a good way. Now, as we've gone along these series analyses, uh, I sometimes have the occasion to talk about general storytelling concepts. Um, I do this when an episode provides a good example of the concept in action, uh, and it's something I hope keeps us all on the same page. One day, I might make short, independent videos about these concepts, uh, but for now, I address them whenever a story makes it appropriate. Today's episode gives me the opportunity to talk about two related concepts, um, but I really wish it didn't, because these are not ideas that you really want associated with your work. The first we can just call Theta's Law of First Act Aliens. Um, it's something I've come up with after many years of taking in sci-fi stories and their success or failure. Um, the law runs like this. If you have aliens in your story, they better be in the title or in the first act. Or to say that another way, no surprise aliens. This doesn't necessarily mean that the alien origin of a story element must be made explicit in the first act, but there needs to be some indication early on that an unknown is outside the understood scope of the story reality. You cannot spring aliens as a solution to a mystery late in the story without losing the audience. Um, I'll talk about why that is in just a moment. First off, let's look at the idea in hypothetical. For Darling and the Franks, if we had learned that the Klaxosaurs were alien in origin, um, or even that humanity was alien in origin, and this was actually the Klaxosaur homeworld, then I think both of those would have been okay. They would have obeyed the law. Humanity and Klaxosaurs are alien societies to each other from the beginning. Having one literally be alien is a believable development that does not overturn the story to that point. All of our tensions and differences and subplots are still intact with that kind of reveal. The question simply becomes, why does their alienness matter? Aliens are often used as a way to justify the existence of technology that isn't understood um, or is too advanced, but you only really need such an explanation when the why of a technology matters to the story. I mean, it's not uncommon in science fiction that there are parts of the technology we don't understand as a human audience, um, but these are known unknowns. We know that we don't know. As long as the plot does not live or die over the particularities of the unknowns, then our ignorance doesn't matter. The story can move forward without needing to resolve the mystery. For example, 
We don't ever need to know exactly how magma energy works. The narrative does not turn around why it functions the way it does. It could be literal magic, and it wouldn't change the way the story has developed. However, we do need to know why Franks have to be piloted in male-female pairs. That fact has caused a lot of the story to turn the way it has, uh, and it's strongly linked to several thematic patterns as well. There needs to be a reason that it can't be another way, especially since we see the characters try different things and have compatibility issues. That is a known unknown that we expect to one day be a known known. Now, in the case of the male-female pairs, we do get an explanation for that this episode. It turns out to be related directly to how the Franks are linked to Klaxosaurs, something that we had reason to suspect already. Um, it also helps explain the known unknown of Klaxosaur history at the same time. That's a good example of having a mystery you expect to be explained end up making sense in the story world as it's already established. The why of the thing is already contained in the scope of the existing setting. I talked before about how one of the hallmarks of competent storytelling is that the end is contained in the rest of the story. Um, I said a good ending basically is predictable. Not in the sense that it's obvious, but in the sense that it is able to be predicted. The elements for the way things play out should be contained in everything that led us there. In hindsight, it should be obvious that the story could only have ended the way it did. And so this is one of the reasons for the law of first act aliens. Pulling out aliens at the end is a way of tying up loose ends without having done the end story work to justify that explanation. Um, it was not able to be predicted. The reveal isn't earned, if you understand. A good reveal should make things click into place in a way that makes them seem obvious in hindsight. That kind of reveal is actually pleasing to the audience as they make the connections in their own mind. A bad reveal defies the internal logic and the understood scope of a story. It challenges your suspension of disbelief. Because of the number of mysteries you can dismiss by simply saying, oh, aliens did it, surprise aliens have become a science fiction specific version of the concept of deus ex machina. Deus ex machina then is the second concept to talk about. It literally means God from the machine, which admittedly is a pretty metal phrase. Um, unfortunately, the concept itself is pretty lame. The origin of the phrase is ancient Greek theater, where it became the convention among some writers to have gods appear in dramas to resolve the conflict. To emphasize that these were gods and not mere humans, they were introduced onto stage via machine, either a crane lowering them from the heavens or a trapdoor elevating them up from the floor. Hence, God from the machine. Now, the fact of how they appeared in the story, how they got on stage, um, is not really what the phrase is about, though the unexpected or unconventional entrance is often similar. What the phrase is actually describing is the usual function of the gods in these stories. See, when the characters had gotten themselves into enough of a bind, had seemingly exhausted all options and were in dire straits, the playwright would simply have a god appear in the story who could set everything right again with their divine powers. They could save a country from ruin, or a hero from death, or allow estranged lovers to be gifted a happily ever after. But what that means is that the characters didn't earn their ending. 
the writer didn't set up the resolution throughout the story, and the audience had no reason to expect the development was possible. In a word, a deus ex machina is contrived. It is an event or development so unlikely in the story as it's understood that it doesn't feel natural. It doesn't belong. It breaks our immersion because its abrupt nature reminds us that somebody created the story. When deus ex machina occurs, you can feel the writer's hand reaching in to affect the story, rather than the story just running its course the way it should based on the characters and settings that we've already established. Like I said, a good story is able to be predicted. Characters and physics and magic systems and story scope should not change just to make the story turn the way the writers want it to turn. Any type of far-fetched setting or character is allowed in the story so long as it's consistent, so long as it's an established part of the internal rules of the narrative. You can have a show about humans living in a simulation, or magic being real, or even a story about alien invasion, so long as you establish that these aspects were on the table early enough in the story. You see, deus ex machina is not about having something unbelievable happen with regard to actual reality, but having something unbelievable happen with regard to the story reality. This is why you only ever hear this phrase mentioned about events toward the end of a narrative. All kinds of incredible things are okay to add to a story in its first act. That's when you're still establishing the type and the limits of the story. For example, the reveals this time about Klaxosaurs diverging into magma or bioweapons is way more unusual than alien invaders. Like, that's a much stranger concept. But because we know about the bioweapons and the incredible properties of magma energy all along, uh, and because we know there's still some mystery there, it's not as abrupt or out of context as the aliens are. So then, what has happened too often in sci-fi is that aliens take the place of those gods in ancient Greek theater. Because they are beyond human experience and usually human technology, they can be used to add in any incredible elements to a story. That's okay, so long as you know you are dealing with something outside the audience's experience. Like I said, the Klaxosaurs being alien would have been okay, because we already knew they were outside of the normal scope of human understanding. They are already alien in one sense of the word. Having them be alien is not a deus ex machina, because the possibility already makes sense within the story limits we know. Unfortunately, that is not what happened. I talked last time at great length about the possibility that some of our ape council might actually be Klaxosaurs, that humanity might actually be an unwitting pawn in a Klaxosaur power struggle. Uh, there are several reasons I thought this was a possibility, but one of the main ones is because of where we are in the story. More than 75% of the way through a story is way too late to introduce a third faction. Um, there were too many hints that three of our original Lamarck Club members were not human to ignore, but the only possibilities were Klaxosaurs, or genetic hybrids, or maybe something robotic. Um, all of those elements already existed in-universe. I chose Klaxosaurs for a few reasons, uh, and I turned out to be wrong. But I'm not disappointed in being wrong, that's just the nature of speculation. I'm disappointed about why I was wrong. Because there is no trace of a third faction in the story until the moment they show up. It's so abrupt of an introduction that I would absolutely believe you if you told me someone new took over writing the series with episode 20. Now, the fact of a third faction at this point is a terrible idea, full stop. 
But that is not even the main part of the problem with this development. The real problem is how many existing tensions are disrupted or possibly made irrelevant by this reveal. For example, we have been talking about the building feelings of rebellion in our squad for nearly half the show. Many of our character arcs and the squad's development as a whole depend on the context of them being outsiders um, and being resistant to the oppressive society they live in. We have been steered toward a showdown of thematic tensions, individuality versus conformity, nature versus artifice, individualism versus collectivism, and an ongoing struggle of fertility and sexuality and love against all the forces that would oppose them. Squad 13 and its members have been built up to represent one side of all these struggles and to stand against their society and the Ape Council who represent the other side. That is a story about what it means to be human, about the costs to our sense of self and our individual value that are required to exist in society at all. It's also about the costs for a society to reach for something like immortality, or the trade-off of rampant ecological destruction for material gain, and then what it would take to resist those forces. It sets up a David versus Goliath showdown of natural human desire and spirit against the unfeeling mechanism of the status quo. That's some good stuff. But now? Having our mysterious ape members be aliens is one thing, okay? As long as they were nominally still on the side of humanity versus the Klaxosaurs, the story could still be on target. Having them reveal that they're planning to blow up the planet, though? That makes them the enemy of all humanity, of all life. Who is going to insist they stay loyal to Papa now? All of the adults, the other squads, the Nines, Dr. Franks, even the other ape council members should be in immediate rebellion against the Verm members. Suddenly, it does not matter even a little bit that Squad 13 was getting ready to rebel against their society and Papa. Suddenly, this isn't some ideological struggle with nuance and conflicting characterizations, but a very black and white matter of simple survival. Even if Squad 13 had been in complete agreement with Papa and their society's ideals up to this point, they would be rebelling against Papa now. Who cares about all that development and drama and angst and heartache to this point if they were going to have no choice but to fight against them anyway? They aren't choosing anything. None of their character development to this point matters even one iota as far as what choice they make next. If our squad is going to have such an obvious decision, why make us watch all the character development to this point? I mean, as it stands right now, they aren't fighting against an alternate human philosophy. They're fighting against an intelligence that is perfectly fine with extinguishing humanity. Obviously, such an intelligence is an untrustworthy source for determining human values or any definition of humanity. I mean, there is certainly commentary here on how willing humanity was to go along with being pacified and manipulated, but that was true even if aliens never showed up at all. Which raises the real question at the heart of this. What does introducing aliens to the story accomplish that was otherwise impossible? I mean, you better have a really good reason for aliens at this point. Uh, because let me tell you, if they did it just to surprise the audience, then the writers should be doomed to spend the rest of their life crafting end-user licensing agreements. And I guess maybe some public flogging or something. And we'll have to wait to see why aliens were so important. Uh, but even then, they could have done just a few things to set it up better. Like, we could have discovered the huge weapons the Klaxosaurs have and wondered why they haven't used them against humanity. 
which would imply some greater unknown threat, or maybe discovering something that indicated a great struggle in the distant past, distant enough to preclude human technology being involved. Heck, just finding out the way Klaxo sapiens went underground and changed themselves to prepare for something would be pretty good heads up. Um, we could also have had a scene discovering a piece of technology with the purple lights instead of the blue, um, perhaps even showing an attempt by officials to cover it up. Or maybe we could have seen the inside of one of the backed up plantations that they exploded with remnants of those little purple veins. Just something to indicate to us that the scope of things was bigger than the Klaxosaurus versus humanity story. So is this salvageable? I will admit that it is presumptuous to assume that the writers don't know how out of sorts this episode is compared to what we expected. Um, I find it hard to believe that they would have created the first 19 episodes the way they did if this was what they had in mind. Um, and I don't mean narratively either. Um, as I said, all of the character struggles and thematic tensions make no sense if the story becomes such an obvious do or die situation against an enemy that has had no story development. But trying to guess how and why at this point is purely speculative. It would be just blind guessing, which I don't really want to do. But I confess that, well, I am looking for a reason to continue. Earlier in the week, uh, I was sorely tempted to just wrap up my analysis here. I've spoken before about how I like to minimize criticism, that it is important to analysis to give the writers the benefit of the doubt. You can't assume that a story has a lot of complexity and nuance to analyze if you don't also assume that the writers are capable of having woven such things into their story on purpose. I have to have faith in the creators to do what I'm doing. And this episode has sorely tested that faith. I've put probably 800 hours or so into my analysis series here, um, practically all of my free time and a lot of my sleep for the past five months. You can imagine how devastating it feels to fear that it has all been for naught, that the series might end up jumping the shark so much at the end that no one thinks of it favorably ever again. You see, an audience will forgive you almost anything at a story's beginning, but will forgive you almost nothing at a story's end. So I don't really know how the community is taking this episode. I know I'm probably not the only one who is a little put out. I wouldn't be surprised if critics who have had nothing to say about the series during all the high points have now come out to pounce on it, like vultures on a corpse. Some people are probably delighted because they predicted aliens and escalation to space just based off their assumption that it would play out like Gurren Lagann or Kill a Kill. Uh, and of course, the flip side of that, people who insisted that this wasn't really a story by that group, um, that it was trigger and name only, and it was going to break some fresh ground, and it wouldn't be derivative. Um, and I'm sure there are some people who don't care about the violation of trust between creator and audience. They just wanted to see the action get even bigger and flashier. Maybe even some of you wish I would stop complaining already and talk about the cool parts. Well, now, I confess that as I worked through the script, I felt a little bit better about things. Uh, my mood has improved as I got further away from the initial shock. I intend to finish this series, um, and I still intend to give it as thorough a look as I'm capable of. In order to do this, then, I've tried to think of all the ways the series could develop that I might find agreeable. For example, a good justification for the presence of Verm in the story before now. 
Perhaps there are details we've overlooked or we've made incorrect assumptions about that could link back to their presence. Um, as many things as got revealed about Klaxosaur history this time, one thing that didn't get revealed was humanity's history. What exactly was Homo sapiens doing during this grand showdown in the past? There is potentially something unifying in that mystery. Um, there are several other lingering unknowns, like the emphasis on disease among the children, uh, the history of Klaxo sapiens before that first conflict, the talk of backing up plantations and being freed from the cages of their bodies, uh, the giant ball of cores from the layman-class Klaxosaur that attacked Plantation 13, um, and there are still gaps in the history of Dr. Franks and Zero Two, and so on. It's possible that this will look less messy in retrospect, but I'm honestly more worried about the thematic patterns getting their due. Because of this, when we get to speculation today, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Rather than give the ways I think the story is likely to develop, I'm going to give a lot of branching paths that I think I would be okay with. This isn't very good analysis work on my part, but it's what's keeping me going right now, so hopefully it will still be interesting. I will also float a possible allegorical rationale for developing the story this way, um, though that is often an unsatisfying thing for an audience. I don't know what kind of allegory yet, but that is a direction that stories with unexpected narrative shifts are sometimes written to explore. For example, there is the H.G. Wells story of The War of the Worlds. It has one of the most narratively unsatisfying resolutions out there. In fact, Wikipedia uses it as an example of Deus Ex Machina. In his story, humanity is overwhelmed by alien invaders, have no way to fight back, they're on the verge of being completely overtaken, and then the aliens all get sick and die. Because humanity was resistant to our pathogens, but the aliens were not. The characters didn't affect the outcome at all. Their deliverance comes completely unlooked for, and they are delivered a happy ending from nowhere. Pretty unsatisfying as a narrative. But, as an allegorical tale of imperialism and colonialism, where Europeans had conquered and exterminated by means of their superior technology, there is suddenly an intriguing payoff. For, much like the alien invaders, European conquerors were unable to overcome and supplant the populations of tropical regions largely because of disease. The natives had resistance to malaria, and the invaders did not. Additionally, putting his fellow Europeans in the role of the conquered, rather than the conqueror, allowed Wells to explore what it must be like on the receiving end of such an onslaught. Perhaps his readers could even develop some empathy for the plight of Imperial subjects after imagining themselves in their place. For my own sake though, I hope that is not the direction they go, because I think of applying a story's theme to the real world as interpretation with a capital I, um, and it's something that is beyond the scope of my show. Uh, but we'll just have to wait and see and hope. Uh, one last note before getting to the walkthrough, I'm sorry. Owing to the size of the script and how much I struggle with motivation earlier in the week, I will not be editing my speech pattern to the degree that I usually do today. Um, it's something you might have picked up on already. Um, think of it as the, the theta cadence. Um, a lot of editing time actually goes into closing the gaps in my speech delivery. Um, and I'm not going to have time for it this video. 
It's not gonna be as bad as when I am speaking completely spontaneously, something you'll get to see if I ever do anything live, um, but it will still probably be noticeable. Videos are actually often several minutes shorter post-edit just from my efforts to curtail this little idiosyncrasy, but today I'm afraid you will not be spared. Hopefully you get used to it. Uh, now then, let's get this thing going. We open today's episode with another briefing scene, a favorite tool of the series for setting the stage for our squad and the audience at the same time. If Papa's promise holds, this should be the final mission for our squad, and it is unsurprisingly related to the Grand Crevasse. While a briefing should be routine by now, in fact the only new information is the term star entity for the massive weapon, they make the scene do way more work by having it delivered by an unfamiliar face. By the end of her spiel, neither the audience nor the squad cares about what she is saying so much as who she is. Who is this Stepford Smiler speaking so glibly about how many sacrifices will have to be made? She turns out to be Nana's replacement, with the same name and code and function, and seems to be unaware of the dissonance she creates in the squad. I have no idea if this is how it usually works in other squads, but no one should have expected Squad 13 to accept this without batting an eye, unless they really, really have no idea what is going on with the 13ers. A scene later on will suggest that even Hachi doesn't find the substitution too eyebrow-raising, so I think we can guess that this isn't unheard of or anything. It does bring up an interesting curiosity. I'm actually unsure if they even know that their Nana had a breakdown. Uh, Kokoro was the only one to witness it, and she evidently immediately ran off to the room where Mitsuru would later find her. Uh, one could understand if she was too distracted to bring the matter up again. Um, she certainly doesn't remember it now, and I wonder kind of if she and Mitsuru actually have any memories of that Nana, or if they've implanted false ones containing this new one instead. It probably won't matter ever, but I guess I'm curious about the normal procedure. Anyway, the standard anime rule of never trusting someone who doesn't open their eyes all the way probably applies here, and Ichigo's question about the riskiness of the Klaxosaur weapon seems appropriately cautious. The question is answered by the Ape Council, however, as they hold a more specific conference with these three. They indicate not to worry, this is why they have spent so long modifying it. This accounts for the downtime between episode 15 and now. As expected, Zero Two will be the core focus of this mission, as Strelesia we've placed in Star Entity's core in order to control it. No doubt this is the realization of her purpose as the replacement key. Papa indicates that they raised her with so much care, all for this day, but Zero Two could care less, and she had been doing her petulant, no eye contact thing the whole time. Though she mutters under her breath about Papa lying to her, Hiro brings her back into the conversation by taking her hand and addressing the council directly. He's not thinking about the mission and its importance to Ape, but rather the mission as a stepping stone to the future that they want. This is what he wants answers for, and I think he probably wants Zero Two to be focused with him, a united front. Remember, she wasn't there when he addressed them before. He reiterates that they are done referring to him as Papa and makes a bold claim. We won't let you control our destiny anymore. 
this isn't the last time we will have characters tempting fate this episode, um, and I guess we should be used to it by now. Uh, but let's acknowledge at least that Hero continues to double down on their separation from society. He is making sure there is no pretense of them returning to the status quo. And again, we should be wary of their acceptance because we know by now they probably have a way to flip the script on our all too trusting characters. After the credits, we eavesdrop on Dr. Franks and Hachi as they discuss Hringhorn's completion. It seems it is a massive spear built from Klaxosaur cores. Owing to the Balder reference, we had expected it to be a ship or a vessel of some sort. However, a spear does figure into the Balder mythology, uh, namely that of the spear made of mistletoe that was responsible for Balder's death. Perhaps this will be the purpose of this spear in the story, a weapon that can kill something otherwise unkillable. I am suddenly reminded that Strelizia's weapon of choice is also a spear. Considering how this episode turns out, um, and the true intent of Papa, one wonders what the spear's real purpose is. Is it meant to be turned against Klaxosaur society? Or humanity? Or the Earth itself? Or even some as yet unknown distant enemy in space? We'll just have to wonder for now, but it's clear from Dr. Franks' reaction that it seems superfluous for the scenario that he's aware of. In his words, it's way too overboard. Dr. Franks then inquires after Nana, meaning our Nana, and Hachi takes it to mean the new one. Dr. Franks lets the matter drop, but this is another slight insight into him. Why ask about her if not for some personal concern? Rather than press it though, he tells Hachi to do as he wishes. I know we have a bit of a kaleidoscope of loyalties and motivations amongst our adults. Um, we don't necessarily understand them all. But I think just from this exchange, we might conclude that Dr. Franks and Hachi are not actually conspiring together. Um, and Dr. Franks isn't counting on Hachi for some purpose in the future. Next, we shift to our squad back in their cubby, unenthusiastically taking in their rations. Fatoshi has noticed that Mitsuru and Kokoro have removed their wedding rings, though we are not given any reason or even a way to speculate as to why. Goto is amazed he notice and starts to ask if he's still not over Kokoro uh, before wilting under Fatoshi's glare. I mean, come on Goto, surely you understand about paying attention to every little thing about your crush. The moment is a little awkward at the unspoken truth before it is broken up by Kokoro, who is having what is almost certainly a bout of morning sickness. Now, none of the squad can probably guess what's going on, uh, she's the only one who read the book, and I'm pretty sure that has been wiped. Um, Ikuno's comment about her sickness happening a lot lately indicates to us that this isn't a passing thing. Kokoro is undoubtedly pregnant. So that means that I was right, and I was wrong. Um, I was positive that Kokoro would be pregnant at some point. Like, you'd have to scrap so much of the story time and the themes for that to, have to never happen. Um, I thought it probably happened at some point just before the wedding announcement too, especially with the symbolic replacement of the lilacs in that room that they shared. But it didn't make sense to me to have Ape take her away and then not check for something like that. Um, or if they did check, it made no sense to let her remain pregnant, especially if they were going to take her memory of what childbearing even was. I mean, leaving her pregnant without any knowledge of what that means? Can you imagine? There's a tiny person in you, and they're going to want out eventually. Oh, and then, 
and then said person will be wholly dependent on you for years and years. <laughs> Surprise! So yeah, that doesn't make sense. It would seem more reasonable that they didn't think or even know to look for something like a pregnancy. But if that's so, why'd they take Mitsuru? They came for both of them, and they announced that intent before they rolled up on the wedding, that they were coming regardless of the wedding. Nine Alpha even asked Hachi at the time if he knew what they were up to. When Kokoro revealed her desire to have a baby in front of the Nines, we knew it probably meant trouble for her. But in that very scene, Goro asks Mitsuru in front of them if he knew about it, and he admitted that he didn't. So they wouldn't be coming for Mitsuru just for that conversation. And I don't think they'd take him just for being her partner either. Even if they needed to wipe both partners' memories in order for the wipe to take, they wouldn't then put them back with their original partners, who don't have their memories altered. So that can't be it. Now, the only thing that makes sense is that they took Mitsuru for also being party to breaking the taboo. So if they knew they broke the taboo, why not check for pregnancy? Pregnancy shows up in the body's hormones in like a week or so, um, and that's just with our world's technology. The only thing that I guess makes sense is a little bit meta reasoning. Forcibly terminating a pregnancy in our young and innocent Kokoro is just one step too far into darkness for the tone of this series. Now that actually means we can adjust our expectations about the outcome uh, based on this. Suddenly something like a permanent separation or something like that seems more likely than a lot of squad death. Um, and every episode that goes by without us knowing Naomi's true fate makes this a little more believable as well. So let's just file that information away for now. As to the scene itself, only the audience knows what her sickness means. Um, the rest are concerned that she is unwell and suggests that she might skip the upcoming mission. But she insists that Papa sent her back there, so she must fight for him, even if it means laying down her life. This is basically just what the Parasites believed back at the start. It's the sort of thing Papa was proclaiming during their startup ceremony. Kokoro has been reset, if you will, back to the compliant, obedient parasite that Ape wants. But now we see the story's journey manifest in the rest, as Miku immediately disagrees and embraces her. She says that neither she nor the rest belong to Papa. In fact, they shouldn't lay down their lives, but they need to survive. They must leave a mark on the future. What's more, Kokoro was the very one who helped convince them of that. This is obviously not enough to cause an about-face in Kokoro, but we can tell a type of conflict in her is being given a little bit of fuel to burn. It would probably go out if she was in another, more compliant squad. But in the midst of the 13ers, her doubt will only get more chances to grow. This contrast is especially evident in the next scene, where all the Parasite squads are gathered together for a lovely motivational speech from Papa. While every squad is attentive, head up, and watching the holograms of Ape, Squad 13 is nothing of the sort. They are uncomfortable, distracted, eyes downcast, or even outright yawning, or smiling at their partner's show of disrespect. Even Mitsuru and Kokoro look out of place compared to the other squads. Teacher's pet Nine Alpha does not fail to notice, and he confronts the squad afterwards. The rest join in to try to bait the 13ers, but Zero Two is the one who steps forward in their defense. She says that they're much stronger than the Nines, and have their eyes set on the future. 
That sounds like a setup to a future showdown, doesn't it? The comment about the future also stokes the turmoil in Kokoro, I believe. Then Zero Two asserts that they shouldn't look down on humans. This is the second time that some distinction is made between the Nines and humans, but no one seems interested in exploring that matter right now. Instead, Nine Alpha retorts that Papa only gives them special treatment because he sees them as necessary tools. Hmm. Methinks that could apply to another squad here, but I can't quite figure out who. The Nines storm off and make an ominously vague threat about them understanding in due time. Zero Two is still fired up about this, but Ichigo claps her on the shoulder and smiles at her. In fact, they're all smiling at her. She seems surprised at this, which I really like. It implies that Zero Two didn't say any of those things for their sake, but because she believed them. That she would have responded the same way even if she'd been alone. She believes in her squad and gets fired up on their behalf. What's more, they recognize her sincerity. This, too, is giving us a moment to appreciate how far she has come since the first half of the series. They even frame her in the exact middle of the squad, as opposed to all the times in the past where she's deliberately displayed apart from the rest. We're being shown their strength as a unit just before it is going to be tested, and tested hard. Alarm klaxons sound, and the mission is suddenly underway, with a giant horde of klaxosaurs bearing down on the Grand Crevasse. Apparently, we have multiple Gutenberg and Lehman-class Klaxosaurs this time, so the threat is the most elevated it has ever been. The bird's nest turns out to be close enough to the Grand Crevasse for them to be deploying from it for this mission, which raises some questions to my mind, but they aren't important, so we'll just skip that for now. Despite their discomfort during the ceremony, Squad 13 seems pretty fired up. Considering they think it's their final mission, it's hardly a surprise and Zero Two's vote of confidence probably didn't hurt either. The exception is our friends about to board Janista. Kokoro toys with her ring finger, no doubt because of the sensation of missing something that her body had become used to. I'm still not sure what the point was of making her ring too tight, considering we didn't t uh, see her take it off, but maybe that will still come back into play. For now, we just know that she is beset with doubts and confusion. Mitsuru is unaffected so far, though, reminding us quite a bit of his all-business self from the early episodes. But that won't last. The Thirteeners join the fray with the rest, demonstrating that even without Strelizia, they have developed into a veritable wrecking ball on the battlefield. Mitsuru and Kokoro are also doing fine, which Mitsuru begins to comment upon. He stops himself from calling her by her codename. Um, I guess no one else does it, so it feels weird and he swaps to calling her Kokoro. That invokes a little video scramble effect that we know all too well implies a buried memory threatening to surface. The pain of it reminds us of Nana's debacle, as well as Young Zero Two's, and as Kokoro attempts to figure out what's going on, she says his name and suffers her own pain in return. Now, I talked last time about how setting them up to be partners again was the only memory restoration tactic that they could hope for. I don't think that's the reason that Fatoshi insisted, something I already went over last time, but it's still a good plan B. However, considering the ordeal that Hiro and Zero Two had to go through to recover their memories, we should not have been expecting Mitsuru and Kokoro to recover memories just by a single piloting. I mean, Hiro and Zero Two piloted together several times, even with Hiro nearly dying, and that still wasn't enough. 
And that's even with Zero Two protecting some of those memories somehow, owing either to force of will or some quirk of her Klaxosaur nature. It required the extreme attempt to drain Hero in Stampede mode for their minds to completely meld and for them both to recover what had been taken. Thus, just piling together probably isn't enough. Maybe it's never enough, and it only worked for Hero in Zero Two because he had her blood in him. They were connected in a way that went beyond shared memories and just being partners. So, there's no way it will do anything for Mitsuru and Kokoro, unless, unless they are also connected in some extra way. Like, I don't know, being the parents of the child that Kokoro was carrying? Literally a third set of genetics made up from each of them, connecting each of them? I'm just going out on a limb here, but if Ape wasn't worried about them piloting together, but was also apparently unaware of her pregnancy, then it seems like a likely X factor to throw the calculations off a bit. We'll have to wait and see what comes of this, but it's a pretty obvious indication that some form of memory recovery has begun for the two of them. The next scene's silence contrasts sharply with the chaos of the battle, something that they've done to good effect a few times in the series. This is pretty much the calm before the storm, the last conversation between lovers or friends before some momentous event. If there was ever a time to tempt fate, this is it, and Hero and Zero Two deliver. Hachi and Dr. Franks ride the elevator with them, but they're down on the ground, giving our two lovers privacy for their stolen moment. As people often do on the cusp of danger, they avoid discussing the immediate threat and task, preferring to skip past and talk about what comes after. They still maintain their shared dream of seeing the outside world. The details don't really matter so long as they're together. This leads to the subject of the picture book. Zero Two begins to discuss the last page, but thinks better of it. I guess we still don't know if she finished it, or changed it, or is still waiting to start. Perhaps as long as it is unwritten, she thinks that their own story could turn out differently. I'm unsure if Hero has picked up on this or not, um, but if he has, then it makes sense that he then guides the conversation to the possibility of them facing more trials. He asserts that they've been through this before, that they've overcome before. Zero Two agrees. In fact, she specifically says that together, they can defy any fate. So once again, we have a specific reference to fighting against fate or destiny, something that has increased in the series in the last few episodes. Then, as if knowing that they are attempting fate, they talk about what they'll do if it doesn't go their way, if they are torn apart. And it's a simple matter. They'll come for the other. It's a promise. Um, I'll have more thoughts on this uh, all the way at the end. Next up, the bottom. It's, it's actually labeled. That's really thoughtful. Uh, anyway, Hero and Zero Two are all set to begin the mission, the very purpose for which she was created and raised, likely the reason that Hero and the rest of Squad 13 have enjoyed the privilege that they have. Complete this, and freedom is potentially within grasp for them all and they can sit down and write out that last storybook page right now with happily ever after. Never mind for a second everything that actually comes after this. This is how close they were, after everything that happened between now and the day they first met. So very close. But then, well, it seems that just as Zero Two could sense Star Entity before, 
She has some connection that allows her to sense the arrival of the princess, like the arrival of destiny, upsetting all the plans that they have tried to will into being. Now, everything with the princess this episode makes me wish so badly that they had set up aliens and a third faction and the original history of Klaxosaurs before now. Because if we knew those were the stakes going in, her moment of crashing into the party and the way she does would have been, well, pretty awesome, honestly. Uh, I mean, it, it kind of is anyway, but we don't know the reveal yet. We don't know that she is more than just an antagonistic force. It gets overshadowed by all the new stuff they throw at us later, but let's appreciate for a moment that this girl knows how to make an entrance. Her pair of snake guardians are curled around each other to create a missile that skips the battlefield almost entirely, delivering her right to the heart of the matter. And she perches there in their mouths as casual as can be, like she's sitting a throne. She's downright poised and feminine in the midst of it all. She even has her little appendages curled and pointed as though she is the tongue of the conjoined snake thing. And indeed, she is the tongue of the Klaxosaurus in a sense apparently the lone one that is able to speak to humanity. It turns out that her arrival was the very thing that Dr. Franks was hoping for. He calls her Code 001, which confirms something we suspected already, and it seems his thoughts last time about his infatuation with her are still going strong. During this conversation, he will offer to pilot with her, to allow them to take control of Star Entity. His statement that she can't pilot it because she has no partner helps explain why there is such a thing as a great Klaxosaur weapon that's sitting around then she's not using to fight back. He further confirms that she is the last surviving Klaxosapiens. Her lack of partner is apparently a permanent situation. I don't know if that means she really doesn't need male Klaxosapiens because they are created when necessary, like in uh, other eusocial societies, um, or if it means that Klaxosaur's eventual extinction is assured uh, without some kind of intervention. Either way, Dr. Franks knows the situation and has been counting on this day to arrive. He reveals that all his research since he met her has been with the purpose of operating Star Entity with the Princess. What he hoped to do after that, I don't know, um, and we'll muse about it a bit in What to Watch For. All we can count on is that we were right that he would side with the Princess if it came down to it, against Ape and probably against anyone else as well. As she herself says, he is a sinful man. Now I think we can consider his offer rejected, though let's note that she does not kill him for the second time. She declares that she needs no partner, though I'm not sure I believe her. Instead, she says she will use the one that he has provided. We can guess that she means hero, but Dr. Franks doesn't seem to. This suggests that they may have managed to keep the matter of hero's sorification a secret after all but that the princess can detect such things, much the way Zero Two could detect her presence when she arrived. As they struggle in vain to get the portal open, Zero Two seems to detect her presence once more, and it scares her. She freezes, and Strelizia's controls are unresponsive when Hero tries to prepare to meet the new threat. Instead, the twin snakes attack and restrain Strelizia. Then, exercising some kind of power we didn't know about, she commands Strelizia to break connection and open her cockpit. Hero's first impression of the princess reminds him immediately of young Zero Two, a comparison that we have already made, but there is no discussion or a chance to understand this change in their fortune. The princess grabs and pulls Zero Two out, 
while keeping Hero restrained and at arm's tentacle's length. She refers to Zero Two as the fake that the humans created, a duplicate that does not realize it is being used by the invaders. When you watch this initially, you assume that invaders means humanity and Ape Council, invading into the Klaxosaurus territory and trying to make off with their creation. However, in retrospect, the invaders she means are Verm. She knows they are using Zero Two. This doesn't make her sympathetic towards Zero Two or anything. Um, this is definitely no happy reunion or anything like that. But I wonder if she thinks of humanity in general as being victims rather than being her sworn enemies. Maybe we'll get a chance to find out, depending on how things go next time. Now, Zero Two and Hero both seem to zero in on that notion of her being a fake. So I'm guessing the idea of her being a lab-grown clone or otherwise synthetic hasn't ever occurred to them. It makes me wonder what exactly Zero Two knows or thinks she knows of her own origins. Did she think she was human with Klaxosaur blood? Um, the way that Nana introduced her to the others back in episode one? She wanted to fully become human, so that seems like a reasonable lie to tell her. Perhaps this fakeness is the thing that Dr. Franks thought she would hate him for if she knew? Now the princess effortlessly tosses Zero Two. As strong as we know Zero Two to be, the princess is clearly in a different league. She closes in on Hero, who is especially helpless, and seeks out the proof that he is part Klaxosaur himself. With this confirmation, she decides that she shall take him, and kisses him aggressively, not unlike the way Zero Two did before they first piloted back in Episode 1. Of course, Zero Two has crawled up again just in time to witness this, and she is understandably horrified. Remember, there is a not-so-subtle sexual energy and undercurrent to the piloting and connection process. Zero Two's kiss in Episode 1 was as much a declaration of ownership over Hero as anything. Thus, she then mocks Ichigo about letting her have him in Episode 2, and is put out when he asks her to pilot with Mitsuru in Episode 3. This forced kiss is therefore even more of a violation than it would normally be. It's a bit like taking sexual possession of Hero, something reinforced in a moment when she demands that he surrender himself to her, that she will devour his body and soul. Zero Two can do nothing to stop it though, and is casually knocked aside once more as the princess closes the hatch. Having gotten a taste of Hero, she declares it curious, and says that he really must be no ordinary human. I talked last time about how Zero Two has used tasting people in a way that suggests she discerned something extra about them, and I thought that the princess tasting of Dr. Franks might be a similar phenomenon. Having her do this to Hero and remark on it this way seems to kind of back this up. We know that Princess and Zero Two share a lot of similarities. I wonder if Hero tastes more than just curious to the Princess. As in, Hero's taste excited Zero Two originally. She said it bites and lingers, it's the taste of danger. Do you think the Princess is actually having a similar reaction, but just calls it curious to downplay it? Her demand for him to surrender himself to her comes immediately afterwards. Yeah, just something to consider. Now, the princess shows no issue connecting to Strelesia, and the Franks transforms in color to match its new pistol. Even the eye and face markings shift to match the princess more closely. As with the cockpit, she can seemingly will the portal to open itself, and she takes Strelesia and the captive hero inside. Now, this is the worst possible outcome for Ape, it seems, as they believe the princess connecting to Star Entity will mean certain defeat. If this is so, does it mean she really couldn't pilot it on her own? 
Otherwise, wouldn't she have done that so long ago to stop the deaths of her brethren and all the incursions from the magma mining? This makes one wonder how accidental the creation of Klaxo Hero really is. Like, why would they fear it and have taken measures unless there was a possibility that she would be able to seize control? Anyway, some of our many questions do at least begin to get answers in these next scenes. We see that Dr. Franks and Hachi have retreated to a nearby room where they observe that the princess has managed to connect to Strelizia. From the overlay, you can tell it's not a normal pistol stamen connection, um, at least for her half. Dr. Franks was not expecting her to link with a human, which again suggests that he doesn't know the extent of Hero's change, but considering he hoped for her to link with him, does that mean he has done something to himself such that he is not technically human anymore? Meanwhile, the princess pilots Strelizia with Hero in bonds, though she uses her tentacles, or whatever we should call her appendages, and kicks back reclined rather than adopting the usual pose that we see pistols take. You know, I'm not exactly thrilled that she's come between our main couple and, uh, and hurt Zero too, besides, but I do kind of hope that the princess sticks around for a minute. Uh, she has some real swagger. Um, I kind of dig it. Uh, I can see where Zero Two gets it. <laughs> anyway, she can pilot Strelizia because it turns out that Franks were originally her brethren, as she calls them. Rather than explain further, she decides to broadcast her thoughts to everyone in the area, apparently including Ape Council up in orbit. She refers to the star entity as the symbol of their bonds that course the planet's depths. Dr. Franks further explains that he discovered that Klaxosaurs long ago split into two forms, and one of these forms returned to the Earth as energy, magma energy. Ape is affronted at being accused of stealing, insisting that magma is part of the planet's resources and that it saved human civilization. Evidently, the princess can also hear them because she responds to this protest, asking them if they realize how self-centered of a viewpoint that is. Further, she cannot allow them to steal her child, Star Entity, as this child is a crystallization of their bonds. Now, we don't have much context for all this yet, or how it works exactly. Uh, we do get a few images played under all this, such as Zero Two looking grievously injured but still conscious, um, the fact that all the squads can hear what's going on and the Klaxosaurus have ceased fighting, um, the fact that the Franks themselves seem unable to move under the force of her broadcast. Nine Alpha is especially indignant at her for speaking down to Papa. I do have some questions here, like, could she always halt the Franks like this? Isn't that the kind of thing she should have done before now? Anyway, after her broadcast, Hachi prompts Dr. Franks about the other form. Evidently, it consumed the energy of the other kind and evolved physically into various forms over time, and even eventually lost their intelligence. This appears to account for the variance in Klaxosaur physical shapes that we've seen. It sounds a bit like the concept of speciation due to separate populations. The ones who kept mingling changed into similar forms to one another, while other populations diverged in form. They flash a lineup of Klaxosaurs we've encountered to this point in order to reinforce this information. Of course, this is not explanation enough, and after further prompting, Dr. Franks reveals that Klaxosaurs are biological weapons consisting of a male-female pair of Klaxosapiens. The female's soul connects to the body of the weapon, and the male's takes root in the core, the cockpit. This should sound pretty familiar, and Dr. Franks confirms. The Franks are just Klaxosaurs that have been modified in a way 
that genetically modified humans can pilot them. I talked last time about how the process of trying to get the Franks to start up sounded an awful lot that they were not designing the Franks from scratch, but were reverse engineering them from something else. I suggested that Klaxosaurs were the only thing we knew of that made sense. It seems I didn't guess quite far enough. They aren't so much based on Klaxosaurs as they are directly Klaxosaurs. The parallels become obvious in the way the piloting is handled. Our pistols connect to the weapon itself, just like female Klaxosapiens, essentially becoming the body, while the stamen connects to the cockpit, the control core, and help move the body. When they destroy the core of a Klaxosaur, it's just like breaking the connection between a stamen and pistol. In the Klaxosaur case, they collapse into blue blood and broken core, while in the case of the Franks, they simply shut down. Now, I'm not exactly sure how everyone is hearing what Dr. Franks is saying, but the squad seems to figure it out all at once. They even make the leap that S-Planning was digging up Klaxosaurs to be repurposed into Franks, which I'm not really sure how they made that leap, but all right. Our 13ers don't seem comfortable with the idea that the Klaxosaurs had pilots just like them, as well as being kept in the dark about something so central to their existence. If it weren't for the huge shift in focus coming up in a moment, I suspect we might have seen them have some mixed feelings about continuing their mission and fighting off an enemy that may not be quite so different from themselves. However, the princess has reached whatever point in star entity she needed to take control. She alights on a structure that rises up to meet her, and this structure looks a lot like the top of a flower's pistol. The computer in Ape's council room helpfully indicates that this is the implanting process. Now, implanting can mean to fix something into a body, like implanting a pacemaker or something, but it's also a term used for when a fertilized egg implants into the wall of the uterus, beginning pregnancy. Either or both could work here, but the latter especially jives with all of our rampant fertility symbolism. The princess and hero are basically like sperm and egg, combining in the giant chamber that is the womb of the star entity. The fact that they touch down on looks like the girl parts of a flower really kind of confirms this for me. Now, this implanting process is bad news for the ape council, but Papa and his vice chair have taken measures. The princess connecting seems to be the point of no return, and so they take this opportunity to spill the beans on their secret plans. There is indeed a split in the council, and these two non-human members admit that they hope to take Star Entity and Hringhorny to space uh, as soldiers. And another member asks, space? And I imagine plenty of the audience also thought to themselves, space? This is literally the first mention of anything to do with space, and clearly the whole council is not up to speed on any such plan. Then they go further, saying that if they can't have it, it can go down along with this planet. Well, that escalated quickly. We'll talk at the end about making sense of all of this plan of theirs and how it jives with past actions. For now, let's just move along with the introduction at this late stage of a third faction. In space. A line of purple dots appear near Earth, and this seems to prompt a response from the surface, as enormous missile and gun batteries rise up out of the ground. As Godoro says, this is way too outrageous. Leaving aside everything else, does holding back such weaponry mean that our Klaxosaur princess never cared that much about the war going on above? 
I mean, she had this arsenal ready to go at a moment's notice, but never used them against the humans who were stealing her own brethren and modifying them to slaughter her other brethren. Did she simply refuse to use these, holding them back against this day? I mean, I hate to point this out, but if you'd used these weapons against the Cosmos Aerial Fortress 19 episodes ago, we probably could have been spared a lot of conflict. I've said before that the robots versus monsters part of the series was always a sideshow, um, a background conflict, that it was simply the setting against which the actual story of the characters and their development has played out. However, I didn't expect that the robots versus monsters conflict was itself a sideshow to the actual threat of monsters versus aliens. I mean, I had no reason to, as I've already explained, but it's kind of amusing that the story's background turned out to be also the background in-universe. How entirely pointless all of those squad deaths have been. Anyway, after our squad gets to be as bewildered as the rest of us at the sudden intergalactic war breaking out, the star entity makes its above-ground appearance. This will indeed turn out to be our mysterious Franks from the new opening. I am guessing that this is the giant hand that we've seen before, and it has been modified to look like a blown-up Sterlesia, what Dr. Franks calls his Sterlesia apath. Since the princess makes a comment in a moment about how ugly the humans have made it, I think this is part of what they have been up to since gaining access, which I guess makes sense. If normal Franks are Klaxosaurs, which are modified so humans can pilot them, then Star Entity would also need some tinkering to make it possible for Zero Two and Hero to pilot. Of course, Dr. Franks was hoping he'd be the one to pilot it, though he seems to get over this regret fairly quickly. By the way, what should we conclude about the bright blue we can see peeking out from under his torn sleeve? That's the arm that the princess tore off, and we've already seen the hand on that side was completely mechanical, but why is his arm Klaxosaur blue? Is he indeed a little bit sorrified under there, preparing himself to be the princess partner? Well, she didn't need him, and she seems comfortably in control of Apath, facing upward towards the extraterrestrial threat. Actual troop transports seem to be the next arrival, and the things that emerge look an awful lot like humanoid Klaxosaurs, just purple-themed instead of blue-themed. I wonder if that's a coincidence. They ignore the Franks on the ground and swarm the Klaxosaur anti-spacecraft batteries instead. It's clear who they consider the real threat. The princess explains over this that long ago they were attacked by invaders from space. They succeeded in driving them off and then holed up in the Earth to prepare for their inevitable return. She says that they are the true enemy, invaders that she refers to as Verm. A little title tells us that these purple ships are Verm, and, what's more, they are a reconnaissance fleet. Scouts, basically. This isn't the full might of these guys, is what I think we are to infer. As to what Verm means or references, nothing immediately sprung to mind, uh, but something that happens in a little bit gave me a bit of a clue, uh, so I'll talk about that when we get there. While she doesn't say that this is directly the reason that Klaxosaurus became what they became, it doesn't seem like much of a leap to say that their disappearance underground and changing into such weapons was all in preparation of fighting back one day. It definitely seems to be part of the purpose of Star Entity, for as she prepares to use her child, she says to Verm that she will not even let them touch their planet this time. It's a nice touch, I think, that she takes up the same posture in the cockpit as Apath takes on the outside 
complete with giant glowing blue horn. It seems that Apath packs quite a punch, and the battle looks like it will be short-lived indeed as the princess winds up for another blast. Of course, Papa did say that they took measures, and now they become clear. Apath was rigged to behave differently if it was the princess who took control of it. Suddenly, purple lines appear all over its surface, and her reaction indicates that she can tell they've done something to it. Something that Dr. Franks wasn't aware of either, as his own reaction demonstrates. The masquerade finally comes down next, as Papa and his vice chair discard their masks to reveal that they are, um, masks. Well, there's something to do with Verm for sure, and their target all along has been this star entity. They explain that it is a mass of life that could disturb the universe's peace. Thus, they rigged it to turn into a giant planet-killing bomb if the princess gained control of it instead of them. An enormous shell, with purple glow instead of blue of course, uh, then begins to encase a path, and we are told that when it explodes the planet will be gone, leaving nothing behind. Now all the squads on the outside witness this transformation. Ichigo assumes that it is Hero and Zero Two both who are trapped inside. We can likely expect our squad to immediately react to all this next time. Dr. Franks, for his part, seems less worried about that whole planet exploding thing and is more distraught at them defiling his work of works. Mad scientist gonna mad scientist, I guess. From this angle, let's note that whatever is under his ripped sleeve really does look a lot like Klaxosaur tech. Now, the planet-destroying bomb isn't the end of things. It seems Verm also plans to absorb all life forms on the planet and, in their words, take you to eternal paradise. It seems they intend to begin that process with Hero and the Princess, as purple invasive veins begin to penetrate and invade their bodies. This actually makes me think a bit of the blue heart and veins that Hero was dealing with back in episodes 5 and 6. This is where I have a guess at what Verm the word might be. It doesn't mean anything on its own that I can see, but if you combine it with the other all caps acronym, APE, you get VERMAPE. What's VERMAPE, you ask? Well, nothing. But those letters can be rearranged into only one word. Vampire. Considering the absorbing all life forms bit that they just laid out, this doesn't seem like too much of a stretch. Verm might be a hive mind society just like the Klaxosaurs, and their secondary intention after stealing Star Entity was to absorb Earth's life into themselves. Perhaps this was what was meant with all the talk of backing up the adults in the exploded plantations, or of freeing the other ape council members from the shackles of their bodies. The sphere which surrounds Apath looks a lot like the shell of plantations, so it wouldn't surprise me at all if the plantations are also rigged and ready to begin absorbing their occupants whenever they say the word. The absorption process seems to be overwhelming the princess and hero, and so his thoughts turn to Zero Two. We cut to her, and she is struggling, having smeared her own blood all the way down the hallway and is stooped under the pain or fatigue that she feels. But that is not what she's thinking of. She is only thinking of their promise from earlier that even if they're torn apart, they will come for the other. Despite the huge turn in fortune, the episode ends with Zero Two wearing a look of complete determination, setting out to get her darling no matter what. Now, before we get into the rest of the breakdown, let's stop a second and see if we can piece out exactly what happened to get to this point, 
with the knowledge that three of our eight members were Verm agents all along. We have no idea when they showed up on Earth, or how they evaded the princess notice, or how much they knew about what changed since they were there before. Perhaps as energy mask things, they are just as immortal as the princess appears to be, and they actually remember the previous engagement as she seems to. Well, maybe not. However they got started, it seems they considered the princess and her society their real enemy, and they target them from the beginning. Being an advanced alien race, they could pose as scientists and bring other humans into the fold, strengthening their disguise. Their technical know-how allows them to uplift humanity a bit, and they intentionally do so in a way that will begin to disrupt Klaxosaur society and bring them into conflict with humanity. I noted during this episode that it seems the princess has been holding out and expecting Verm to return. This might explain why she didn't just overrun humanity immediately before they got to the stage of, you know, making Frank squads and making inroads towards the Grand Crevasse. That is to say, humanity was just a pest to her, and she wasn't going to spend her strength on them if she didn't have to, saving it against the day that Verm returned. Perhaps this is just what Verm counted on and escalated humanity's war over time. Somewhere in all this, they learned about Star Entity, and they both fear it and covet it. Why such a thing exists if the princess can't really use it, I don't know. Maybe she actually can, but really was saving it for the day that Verm returned. Either way, once they know of it, they want it for themselves. This begins the process of trying to replicate the princess DNA in order to pilot it, a plan that eventually leads to the creation of Zero Two and everything that comes after. They convince the other eight members that they need it to finish the war, hiding their true motive of absconding Earth with it. Bending all their resources towards controlling it does not raise any alarm bells for the others because they sell it as a way to end the Klaxosaur conflict. Now, their original plan in the past was taking over and absorbing all life on Earth, and that's a goal they still intend. Having lost to Klaxo Sapiens the first time, they try a different tactic, infiltrating and stoking war with a rival society to weaken them and potentially steal their trump card. But they are cautious, and arrange for the weapon to be unusable against them. They also time their fleet to arrive on the day that they will try to activate Star Entity. Either they will control it themselves and add it to their civilization's weaponry, or they will destroy it so that it can't pose a threat to them in the future. Along the way of this plan, they slowly take over the non-Klaxosaur society and coax them into complete dependence on their technology. They also pacify them by granting them immortality and on-demand pleasure, isolating them from each other by allowing fertility and the resulting family units to wither away to nothing. Perhaps this is the reason that childbearing is taboo, not because they fear the parasites having children, but because they can't afford to have the mass of adults be reminded of what they gave up, and that threatens their passive compliance. Thus, here at the end of the episode, everything appears to be going to their plan. But I wager it won't last. So then, on to goals and conflicts, and there is a lot, as you can see. Uh, we'll start with Sea Outside World. Uh, well, this episode is called A New World, and bringing space and the whole rest of the universe into the field certainly expands the idea of what the outside world can even mean. This goal has taken a step back, obviously, 
because our pair is separated with no clear means for them to be reunited. But the conversation they have before everything goes sideways gave me a notion that I will explore a little more in speculation, so we will just table this until then. For Dr. Franks' unknown goal, we mentioned last time that his desire to see the pinnacle and limit of the human species was either one goal or part of his total goal. This time we get it further spelled out. He wanted to connect to the princess and to complete his work of works, Strelesia Apath. Ideally, he would have piloted with her, but he seems to have recovered from being rejected and is really only upset when Apath turns out to be corrupted by Verm. When I rewatch this, it's not actually clear if Dr. Franks is surprised about the arrival of aliens. He's upset at Apath becoming a bomb, sure, but after the reconnaissance fleet shows up and everyone else is reeling from the shock, he's exulting about Strelesia Apath and its beauty. Did he actually have cause to suspect the aliens? Or simply wanted to be part of the fight against them? Because really, Dr. Franks is responsible for Ape being able to get at Star Entity in the first place by creating the Franks robots and the Parasite system. I'll be curious to find out what he did or didn't know. As far as his goal though, it looks like he's going to be disappointed. Though, if an opportunity to be with the princess presents itself again, I think we can count on him jumping at the chance. As it stands now though, this looks like a goal that is abruptly cut short of progress due to the sudden alien plot. In Ape's unknown goal, um, well I guess we actually need to split this up a bit, the Verm members of Ape had two goals. Take over Star Entity and use it for themselves, and absorb all life forms on the planet. It sounds like they tried the second one in the past, or something similar to that, and this additional attempt to take over Earth used a less direct approach by making humanity their proxies. This ties into Ape's other goal we've talked about before, a future of calmness and uniformity. While the human Ape Council is thinking that the pacified, immortal adults of Plantation Society fulfill this goal, the Verm members are thinking of uniformity in a more literal sense, absorption of life itself. I am guessing that being taken into Verm is a bit like instrumentality from Evangelion, or maybe the Borg from Star Trek, a merging of consciousness and surrender of individual will to a collective. The present state of adults in this world is a nice stepping stone to that hive mind state. And so, just like with taking over Star Entity, the two sides of the Ape Council could have the same goals, but for different reasons and different eventual results. This is a bit speculative, I realize, um, so we'll talk a little more about it later. Kokoro wants a baby. <laughs> Surprise! I'm actually unsure how to treat this now, because she's almost certainly pregnant, but she almost certainly no longer has this as a goal. It's going to be a really odd way to meet this old goal if she recovers memories of the desire, along with the knowledge to correctly guess that she has fulfilled it. It'll certainly be dramatic. If the tone of our show was a little different, I would actually be worried about her fate, as the attack on human fertility theme would get quite the reinforcement from the death of a pregnant cast member. Instead, the opposite seems way more likely that we can count on fertility and the path of nature returning to the world, either simultaneously with her carrying the child to term, or maybe happening just afterward. Like I said last time, even though Kokoro's desire to have a baby was insignificant in the scope of the narrative, it's absolutely critical to theme. 
Her being pregnant gives a strong confirmation of the direction that that part of our story will go. Finally, a new goal for Zero Two, get Hero back. How she might pursue this is something I will talk about in speculation, because there's a lot of options. Uh, what will be interesting to see is if she has to give up something else in pursuit of it. For example, I think this goal is more important to her than her relationship with Squad 13, or the lives of people like Dr. Franks or Hachi, or even her own pride or survival. We know she can heal pretty well, but just the fact of her pushing forward while injured in pursuit of him has the potential to result in a little calamity. <clears throat> so then, in conflicts, uh, this is where we can see most of the damage of pulling something like Alien Invasion this late in the story. Uh, we have three new conflicts, which is a lot to add at this stage. We also have one conflict completely collapse in irrelevancy, and another one that seems so trivial now that we're left wondering why time was spent on it at all. Uh, anyway, let's start with a couple conflicts that have a normal advancement. The Klaxosaur threat. Uh, turns out that they are indeed the enemy of our enemy. It's just that the enemy turned out to be both Plantation Society and a new faction of aliens. Considering the guiding influence that the Verm members of Ape likely wielded, we can probably consider the current state of Plantation Society to actually be part of the Verm threat. But that doesn't mean that defeating Verm would suddenly create peace between Klaxosaurs and humans, or between Squad 13 and their society. For now, all we should probably say on this is that the Klaxosaurs have a much bigger fish to fry than the Frank squads. The Blue Heart, Yellow Blood conflict. We were uncertain how heroes advancing Saurification would play out. Um, one of the things we are watching for is how his squad mates or society reacts to discovering what's up with them. However, it is instead first uncovered by the Klaxosaur princess of all people. Part of my XY theory speculation last time was supposing that Hero's potential as a male Klaxosaur might create some interest from the princess. I didn't suspect this would make him a suitable partner for piloting with her, but that is certainly in line with a possibility being created by him becoming an XY Klaxosaur, uh, at least in part. So basically, this conflict is directly responsible for him being in the situation he's in now at the heart of a giant planet-killing bomb while being absorbed by alien invaders. If you thought that was going to be his fate after the Blue Heart first showed up in Episode 5, then you are a lying liar lying out of your lying lie hole. So next then is The Jig Is Up. This was the conflict where we were collecting all of the fallout from the experiment of leaving the squad by themselves without oversight, and then Ape's discovery of that situation. Now that Ape turns out to be the enemy of all life, well, who cares? Whether they complied with Ape's directives or taboos or not, they would still be in the exact same situation of being strapped to a doomed planet while aliens try to absorb their life. But now that the Verm members of Ape have also dropped their facade, there is also no reason to hide what they want anymore, and certainly no reason to give the rules of society any more heed. The only outcome still ongoing from this is that Kokoro and Mitsuru's uh, memory situation and Nana's removal, which itself should cease to matter after the reveal. Additionally, the squad ailments conflict, well, this is the one I said seems pretty insignificant now. Who cares about the kids aging and getting fevers when all of them are in danger of getting absorbed or blown up or both? 
you were left asking why we bothered spending time setting this up and then introducing this threat if it was going to be so wildly overshadowed by the events of this episode. It's for sure something that the show is going to need to answer. Um, I'm not going to take this one down, and when we get to speculation, I actually have some thoughts about how this can still be relevant to the final story. For now though, we just have to hope that they didn't waste our time with this. Next, uh, as I said, we will add three new conflicts. The most pressing appears to be the Verm invasion and life absorption, uh, followed by the conflict with Apath. We have to assume that they will try to absorb all life forms before blowing up the planet, so that is the order of operations here. Uh, however, they are separate conflicts, as somehow defeating the invading Verm does not necessarily turn the bomb off, and extracting Strelesia or otherwise stopping the bomb will not make the fleets in orbit vanish either. So the conflicts are divided thus. The Verm invasion absorption includes the current attempts to take all life forms, the current reconnaissance fleet uh, bombarding Earth, the two ape council members and whatever power or influence they still wield, and any potential additional Verm fleet or threat that may show up later. The Apath corruption conflict includes the planet-destroying bomb connected to it, Hero and the Princess being trapped inside, and potentially any other influence the Verm corruption of Apath may have on the story. Lastly, Zero Two is injured. Like I mentioned, she has something of an advanced healing factor, but I am unsure they would have shown so many images of her struggling if it was going to be a complete non-factor. Um, she's barely conscious in a pool of her own blood, she's smearing blood along the wall as she walks, uh, she's collapsing for a moment and then willing herself to soldier on. All of these draw our attention to the extent of her injuries. So new conflict it is. While Zero Two might not prioritize resolving this one, other people might feel differently. And so it may affect the plot in that way, even if it doesn't ultimately kill or disable her. So theme is a little in the background this time. Uh, this was a plot and world building heavy episode, which means some other elements like characterization and theme must necessarily be pushed aside a bit. Um, there are some tiny things I will go over regardless. Uh, we have power of names. Um, calling each other by their name seems to be the beginning of a memory trigger in Mitsuru and Kokoro. This isn't just about having memories attached to using each other's name. It's about the individuality and humanizing power that a name signifies. The removal of their memories is an attack on their personal autonomy, uh, their personalities, and an attack on the sacredness of their own minds. It is dehumanizing and reductive. It's little wonder that Kokoro can go right back to believing it's her duty to die for Papa, as she's been turned back into a cog in a great machine. The names they have are a defiance of that role, and saying them again is therefore a defiance of the oppression that inflicted upon them, namely the memory wipe. Having the saying of names trigger buried memories is not just about doing something familiar but forgotten in-universe, it's also thematically a rebellion against those who did that to their mind in the first place. Um, individualism versus collectivism? Maybe? It kind of depends on whether the absorption of life forms is a type of assimilation or not. Uh, even if not, the ease with which the Verm leaders of Ape are now able to take control of all humanity seems like quite the caution against collectivism taken too far. 
Squad 13's situation of being ready to resist a monolithic authority due to their comparative individuality might also get a chance to shine. In flower imagery, uh, we talked a little bit about the inside of Star Entity and how Hero and the Princess implanting there seems an awful lot like the beginning of a new life, or at least the step in sexual reproduction where a fertilized egg begins gestation. What that implies, I don't really know, as Hero and the Princess are still different kinds of things. But it's possible that, if the Princess survives all this, there might be some restored fertility to the Klaxosaur society that is enabled or represented by this merge. Depending on how the life absorption goes down, this could also symbolize the beginning of some new life form altogether. That has potentially troubling implications for Hero and Zero Two, but that scene suggests new life beginning pretty strongly, I think. So we'll have to wait to see how the thematic implications develop into in-universe outcomes. Then, Fate versus Desire. We added this last time, and this time we especially see it at work in the last conversation between Hero and Zero Two. Specifically, when talking about the potential trials they might be facing, Zero Two says that together we can defy any fate. Of course, that means that defying fate requires that they be together, while our episode ends with them apart. But the conversation didn't stop there. They continue to talk about what to do if they're torn apart, which is where the promise for each to come get the other originates. This is pretty much them drawing a line in the sand and challenging the idea of fate itself. It seems they acknowledge that fate might be determined to keep them apart, but they value their own desires over whatever universal machinery has conspired to come between them. I think this is important to note because it goes along so well with our other thematic patterns about individuality. Their personal desires matter more to them than any external idea of how their story should play out. This is why the picture book is such a point of distress. It looks so much like their story that the end separation feels like the hand of fate. They're determined to defy it if it comes to that, but the tension here is that we don't know if their desires are enough. There are some pretty big forces stacked against them. Like I mentioned in Conflicts, the changes to Hero that happened way in the past and only seem to affect his ability to pilot have now led to him being strapped to a giant explosive. In fact, he might be the only person in the world who could have ended up in that situation and it began with choices he couldn't possibly have anticipated would lead to this. The forces of society, and of Verm, and of the princess are all bigger, stronger things than they are. Hero's current situation arises because of choices those powers made, not because of his own choices or desires. The story can still develop in a way where the inertia of fate is simply too mighty for any individual desire to overcome. Uh, to mention another theme from the past, um, I didn't put it up here, and I really don't have anything to say about it, but the shooting star metaphor is from episode 7 is something we talked about being akin to the cherry blossom symbolism. Now that space invaders are suddenly on the table, we might find occasion to revisit that entire conversation between Hiro and Ichigo. Especially all that bit about the hidden star in Orion, uh, might end up having more subtext than we could have known about at the time. We also briefly have a little bit of structure mirroring, um, just in that little bit with Mitsuru and Kokoro having the memories that threaten to return while they're piloting. Um, we anticipated this before, so I'm just reiterating it. 
there's also another potential mirror, um, but that is more properly discussed in speculation because it might not happen. Finally, um, this isn't something we've talked about in this section specifically, but if you remember, I spoke a lot about how the new credits we got in episode 16 seem to have a theme of separation. At this point in the series, it looks like it might have ramped up to its highest level. Nada and Hachi are separated from each other. The Ape Council members are separated from each other, ideologically. Hero and Zero Two are separated from their squad and are now physically separated from each other as well. Um, there is a chance that Hero might change in a way that separates them biologically too, uh, depending on what is going on with those purple veins. The princess might be separated from her people alongside him. Finally, Kokoro and Mitsuru, despite their physical presence with Squad 13, are still separated from them because of their altered memories and emotions. There's lots of separation all around. But the good thing in all this is that we are at maximum separation with nearly two hours of story left. There is plenty of opportunity to close the distance in the ensuing four episodes. Remember, we frequently discussed how stories rise and fall. You need to be on a low point going into the ending if you have hopes for ending on a high note. Even if we don't get everything the way we want, we can surely bank on several of these separations being solved in the remaining episodes. Now, one thing we did get a lot of this time was answers, regardless of how we feel about them. This means we're taking a lot of things off of what to watch for aboard today. Learning the secrets of Klaxosaurs and the Franks means that we finally understand why Franks need male-female pairs, why the original Klaxosapiens adopted this system is not explained, but it may not ever be explained directly. Since our plot doesn't turn around their situation, it's not as important for us to know this information. Confusingly. Um, we had a couple about Mitsuru and Kokoro. One is wondering whether their personalities would revert to how they were originally. From this episode, I would say that, yes, they seem to. Mitsuru is back to being distant and calculated, hiding his emotional state as a default. Kokoro likewise has reverted to believing in her purpose of dying for Papa's sake, and by extension, she has reverted back to before she became defiant or confident. It was Mitsuru's influence and example that stoked that change in her originally. With that gone, she is back to being super compliant Kokoro. Additionally for these two, what will come of them reconnecting? While nothing has finished happening yet, the way each of them has that headache that we associate with servicing memories indicates that, yes, their connection is going to disrupt what Ape has done to them, at least in some way. Full-blown memory recall? We'll have to see, but we wouldn't get the bits of them under distress after saying each other's name if nothing else was going to come of it. In Zero Two's section, we see that her link to the giant hands is that she can potentially fill in for the princess in implanting and controlling the entity. Um, that is still assuming that star entity and the hands are the same thing, of course. Since she can sense the hands as well as the princess, I think we can further extrapolate that she might have a type of telepathic link with Klaxosaurs somewhat akin to whatever it is the princess herself possesses. Next up, what is the Grand Crevasse? Considering the anti-spacecraft batteries and the amount of space that Star Entity takes up, I think Grand Crevasse was always a type of fortress against the return of Verm, with the secret weapon Star Entity being housed and protected there. 
Considering that the Ver members of Ape were basically playing the long con here to defang both humanity and Klaxosaurs, taking over this fortress makes a lot of sense as their main goal in this series. We also learn that Hringhorni is a massive spear, specifically meant to be wielded by Sterlesia Apath. The only hint to its purpose is that they wanted to take it with them to space, but I think it is simply meant to be Apath's weapon in the same way that Strelesia is a spear-wielding fighter. Now I have no doubt it's going to affect the story in some way that Verm did not intend, but we're just going to have to wait on that one. Next, I had wondered what exactly the Klaxosaur princess meant when she called the would-be assassin a human wannabe. This is actually one of the reasons that I feel put out by the writers here. I don't believe that she would have called a Verm agent a human wannabe. Like, she knows what they are. She knows humanity is being deceived. She should know that they are not actually attempting to be humans. Having her say this is misleading to the audience in a way that doesn't make sense for her to have said in-universe. Not showing us what's under the outfit and implying that something is different about him versus the others, perfectly fine. Good, even. But implying that whatever it is underneath there is trying to emulate humans when she knows the truth is deceitful. Anyway, we will cross this off since it doesn't actually seem to mean anything except a dishonest way to trick the audience. As to the replacement key and what it enables, we guessed this already, but we got to see for sure that the key and replacement key are the Princess and Zero Two, and Star Entity is what they enable. We also wondered last time if Ape would alter the final mission for Squad 13 due to their request of being free. Now we can see that they did not even need to bother, as this was meant as a final mission for all of humanity anyway. We figured it might be a one-way ticket anyway, considering how readily they agreed, but it's even more of a final mission than we originally guessed. Under the Klaxosaurus heading, we learn that the human-like centers are the remains of male Klaxosapiens whose soul took root in those cores. There is some comfort in knowing they long ago lost their intelligence, I guess. Um, what is the giant hand? Again, I am assuming this is what Star Entity is, and the way it presents as a giant Strelesia is just what they were doing to it during the gap between episode 15 and right now. Why it was able to move a bit on its own is still unexplained. However, one of the Verm agents describes it as a mass of life, so it may be that it is a living thing with certain instinctual behaviors. When it showed up originally, I likened it to one of the amalgamation Klaxosaurs that we had seen before. It may very well be thousands and thousands of Klaxosapiens joined together to create a single powerful life form. The princess does refer to it as the crystallization of their bonds, which I think means not just the bonds between male and female Klaxosapiens, but between the Klaxosapiens who became magma and those who became the bioweapons. In other words, it's like a personification of their entire society. Little wonder only their princess can control it, and little wonder she wouldn't stand for anyone else to try to take control. Finally, in Dr. Franks' section, we wondered if he would defy Ape's goals when it came to the princess, owing to his ongoing infatuation. It seems that he certainly planned to, and anticipated that she would come for Star Entity. He was prepared to link up with her and cast aside Hero and Zero Two's part of the mission, even though it didn't quite go as planned. I suspect he could still be convinced to do something drastic for the sake of our princess. 
Uh, but we'll come back to that. So we will have a few things to add real quick. We need to watch to find out where Homo sapiens came from. Uh, like I said, there was nothing in the Claxosaur Princess story about what mankind was doing before or after that first attack from Verm. Relatedly, did Verm affect or influence humanity before those three members of Ape showed up? Like, have they directed evolution or civilization before now? We also want to watch to see who the Nines are actually loyal to. Is it still Papa? Is it the remaining Ape Council? Are they complicit with Verm and knew all along? Finally, what was Dr. Franks going to do if he got his wish of piloting Apath with the princess? I feel like he should have rigged Zero Two to fail somehow to prevent their success so that he has the opportunity. He didn't, but maybe he intended to just overpower them when the princess showed up, hence sending them ahead rather than calling for reinforcements. Either way, what was his next move? I don't think he knows about the Verm conspiracy, so he can't be intending to fight against them. And even if he does, he must ultimately have intended to turn on Ape. But to what end? Overthrowing Plantation Society and resurrecting Claxosaur Society? With he and the Princess ruling the two peoples as one? That at least would explain his interest in Squad 13, as well as in Hero and Zero Two. Maybe he had an interest in both the future of restoring humanity naturally and the possibility of some hybridization between the two races to restore the Claxosaurs. We might not actually get any answers on this one, but what I really want to know is what did he intend for our squad and his research uh, if he had been the one to get into Star Entity? So speculation, first let's do our bookkeeping and adjust our board, um, and then I have a lot to say about future speculation. Our very first speculation finally came to pass, where I was positive that the basic premise of robots versus monsters for the fate of humanity was not going to be the whole story. I'd hoped it would be something interesting like divergent humanity or being caught in a Claxosaur civil war, but alien invaders posing as humanity's leaders to revive an ancient conflict over the fate of life on Earth certainly qualifies as being outside the original premise. So off the board you go. We all but guessed this already, especially with the meta information of credits, but there is indeed a 001, and it's the Claxosaur Princess. Now that we know she existed long, long before any codes were being given out, we can wonder a bit about the code granting process. 02 has the next code in sequence, and she is also the most like the Princess. Should we guess then that the code numbers are not merely a description of possible piloting aptitude, but also a particular similarity to the princess herself? Maybe lower numbers like Hiro and Ichigo might be a little bit more Klaxosaur-like than higher numbers like Kokoro or Zodome. This does raise some questions about Nana and Hachi, especially since they had no problem reusing code 007 for the new Nana. Uh, anyway, we will take it off the board. Now, my big XY theory from last time lost its most basic premise with the surprise aliens, so we will take this off, obviously. Um, although it was a miss in a general sense, a lot of its aspects did bear out. I already mentioned how Hero being potentially an XY Claxosaur of sorts might cause the princess to be interested in him. Uh, there's also the observation of Ape being comfortable with a eusocial structure to a society because they come from one. That might actually be right, but instead of it being Claxosaur society, 
It might be that Verm society is also eusocial, or at least hive mind. All of the evidence that pointed to those three members of Ape being non-human are all true as well, even if they ended up being aliens instead. Their proficiency with technology and pre-existing knowledge that led to the magma mining and the plantations and the immortality are all things that did happen because they were familiar with Klaxosaurs, just for the reason that they had fought with them before, not that they came from them. We're also right about the state of Klaxosaur society with the princess being singular, with a lot of infertile workers under her command. I don't know that they are infertile exactly, but if she is the last Klaxosapiens, and it took a long time for Klaxosaurs to get to their current state, then it certainly suggests that there have been no new Klaxosaurs in quite some time. So let's see, Kokoro is pregnant. Yeah, okay, that's not confirmed, but she's pregnant. I thought she was originally, and was confused by her coming back, thinking surely they wouldn't let that stand, uh, but we've been over that already. Considering the thematic weight of her pregnancy, I think she is probably safe from harm until it comes time for labor. So I have this multi-part conditional speculation down here from a long time ago um, about Goro and Ichigo. This might be pointless since Goro has gotten pushed to the background a lot lately, um, but let's look at it anyway. I said that if Goro and Ichigo were a thing before Act 3, then Zero Two is doomed or she becomes human. I know the series doesn't perfectly fit a three-act structure, but generally concepts like Act 3 or an Act 3 break still apply due to the prevalence of the technique. I would say that we are definitely into the last stretch of our series now, so we can ignore the first half of this speculation. Instead, the second half, um, I speculated that if Zero Two is still with us, then Goro and Ichigo will become a thing, or else Goro does not survive to the end. There's been zero time to advance their relationship lately. Um, if anything, they should have done that during those days when they had no supervision. Um, it's not too late or anything, but I wanted to point out that only the second half of this is in play now. So down here a bit, uh, we said the Ape Council would be different from other adults. Um, it's just some of them, but the most influential ones, so I say that counts. It'll be interesting to see what they do with the remaining members, assuming that Verm doesn't just immediately absorb them. Finally, we guessed that Zero Two and the Princess would meet, likely by the Princess initiating it. They do come together due to Princess crashing the Star Entity Party, and the Princess is not amused to meet a fake version of herself. I'm guessing this isn't the end of their interaction, unless the Princess is not long for this world. So then, to add some speculations. Like I said, speculation seems like a futile pastime now, with the showrunners playing a little fast and loose with our internal consistency. I don't normally like to speculate lots of ways a show can play out, because you aren't really making any judgment calls. It's kind of like shooting a shotgun at a field of targets, and then declaring that the ones you hit were the ones you were aiming for all along. However, considering I am probably not alone in feeling a bit deflated about this turn of events, I thought I might present some possible story paths that would keep a lot of our themes and characterizations and the goals and conflicts intact. Not all of these can be right, of course, but I thought perhaps proposing some maybe not terrible ways the story could progress might help other people want to keep going. I mean, thinking them out has certainly helped me. It all begins with whether or not the purple veins and absorption are a type of assimilation or not. 
because that either opens up or precludes some possible outcomes. As I mentioned in Goals, this may be the future of calmness and uniformity. Absorbing Earth's life forms might not be the act of taking the energy or the life force, but might be about taking them over entirely, stripping them of their autonomy and individualism, and forcing them to become mindless servants of the Verm hive mind. Perhaps this gives them control over the actions of the bodies of those whose minds they absorb. Perhaps they only take their consciousness into their own and the physical shells are discarded. At the very least, this idea plays well with theme, even if it does make the tension have way less nuance. If this is a possibility, then plantations seem prearranged to let them absorb all of the adults within. Indeed, rounding up all of humanity from hundreds of thousands of cities uh, all over the earth into just a few dozen plantations in one part of the world has already accomplished most of the work of preparing them for absorption. This not only would explain the plantation con in the past, it would take the society at large out of the upcoming conflict, sparing us the need to explain how the adults are reacting to the knowledge that they have been duped and are in a fight for their lives. This might also be what was up with all the adjustment of the non-13 squads in Bird's Nest. They kept Dr. Franks in the dark about that, but maybe that had nothing to do with his shenanigans with the 13ers experiment. Maybe they were adjusting all the parasites as a way to prepare them for assimilation, or obedience, or even forcibly taking control of their actions. That would be something they'd want to keep quiet from the doctor. If that has any substance to it, then it means our 13th squad's unique status will suddenly matter again, as they will be resistant to whatever situation has been manufactured. Though, they will have the problem of the same thing possibly happening to Kokoro and Mitsuru as in a complication. The absorption also might take the Klaxosaurs out of the fight if no one rescues the princess. She appears to control all of the Klaxosaurs via telepathy, and this extends to some kind of control over the Franks as well. If she is neutralized as part of absorption, then all those anti-spacecraft weapons and the star entity and the ground forces are neutralized as well, even if they somehow stop the giant bomb. Now, I am guessing they cannot take control of her mind and then control all of the Klaxosaurs through her. Um, if they could, there would be no reason to rig the bomb. They could just let her implant, take her over, and control Sterlesia a path like that. But they did perhaps believe that they could control Zero Two and Hero this way, which is why they rigged the possibility of absorption into APATH in the first place. Hero and Zero Two would have complied of their own accord with using APATH to wipe out Klaxosaurs, um, so they can still have their autonomy for that. But to abandon Earth and become a tool for an alien species? If that was the real plan, then they definitely counted on some way to control them directly, which I think suggests that the absorption really is some kind of forced link to the hive mind. Heck, even without the plan to leave Earth, it was probably not a good idea to let Hero and Zero Two control something like that. Um, Ape might find itself blasted out of orbit in short order without some plan to control them. Now, regardless of whether the absorption results in control of those absorbed or not, if it's allowed to continue, it will undoubtedly take out a huge amount of the forces on Earth. We aren't given any hint as to how it works or how they control it, uh, the weirdly invasive veins attacking Hero and the Princess after APATH shows the uh, purple tech lines are all the cause and effect that we get. If they can pre-rig something like that, 
then the plantations make sense to be next, and possibly the ape council members as well. Uh, they definitely wouldn't want them to be running amok. Heck, maybe all the Franks are rigged also. And this whole thing becomes very one-sided, even without the ability to take control. Now what will actually happen next pivots pretty strongly on Zero Two's actions. We know she's going to try to get to Hero, and I think Squad 13 will probably try something themselves. Squad 13 won't wait or respect any orders when they think Hero and Zero Two are in peril, but if the assimilation stuff is true, then they might not get the opportunity. They might suddenly have the other squads turn on them, or have to deal with Kokoro and Mitsuru being controlled, or even have their Franks shut down due to actions taken against the princess. Thus, I think Zero Two's actions will be the next linchpin. I mentioned there might be some structure mirroring upcoming, and this is what I was thinking might be involved. The end there, with Hero trapped in Strelesia Apath and being overtaken, seems a lot like episode 15, when Zero Two was trapped in Strelesia and transforming. In that episode, Hero was determined to come for her, and even got injured in the attempt, bleeding down his face. This episode ends with Zero Two similarly bleeding and similarly determined to come for him. We already once had a mirror with Hero breaking the glass to free young Zero Two that was later reversed when Zero Two broke the glass to get him through the barrier and enable their piloting. So it seems appropriate that since Hero showed up in Strelesia to try to free Zero Two from her predicament, Zero Two will this time be the one to show up in the cockpit to try to free Hero. A little more on that possibility in just a moment. The question is, how does she get there to reenact that scene? She doesn't have a Franks or a partner, and she's pretty injured. We have yet to see a pistol pilot a Franks aside from their own, and now that we understand their origin, it has a certain logic to it. If she can pilot something though, she might opt to go stampede mode and forego a partner. However, elsewhere in the facility with her are two potential partners. Hachi and Dr. Franks. Hachi was a former parasite, so you know he's capable. Um, if she links with him, perhaps he can regain whatever memories, emotions that he lost along the way, since that seems to be a side effect of connection. Alternatively, or even afterwards due to this, Hachi might decide to go find Nana, or original Nana, and they dust off their combat suits and pilot a Franks of their own, potentially with some more memory regaining shenanigans. Now, the alternate possibility of piloting with Dr. Franks. Considering he set himself up to be able to pilot with the princess, he must be capable of piloting with her near match in Zero Two. He might even have some suitable Franks tucked away somewhere. We might even get to see what's under his sleeve and the metal parts if it comes to that. Regardless, I think we can assume that he would take no convincing to go to the aid of the princess. Um, there is a nice symmetry to that arrangement. This could also result in Zero Two extracting some more memories from him, perhaps her own origin or something else that he would prefer to keep hidden. There is also the X factor of the Nines. I'm unsure where their loyalties will lie. It's possible they know about Verm and are completely loyal to Papa regardless. Um, that might even explain their odd gender situation, as well as the three masked triplets. Perhaps they turn on the 13th squad, and we get to see if Zero Two's statement about the 13ers being stronger is true or not. But if they aren't loyal to Verm's agents, and they realize that they have been used just like everyone else, then they might become unlikely allies to Zero Two or to the 13th squad. 
In the case of Zero Two, she would have to swallow her pride to come to them for help, and they still might stand in their way or just refuse her outright. But it may be that there is no piloting attempt at all. Zero Two might soon learn that she is a near copy to the princess. She has gone to great lengths in her life to become more human-like, and that seems to have affected more than just her looks. Uh, for example, she doesn't heal instantly anymore. Perhaps there are other ways she could have been more like the princess if not for her human-like transformation. Perhaps she could have a link with the Klaxosaurs like the princess does. Perhaps she could have her crazy strength and some extra appendages. Perhaps, perhaps she could still have these things if she's willing to surrender her more human side and go full-blown Klaxosapien. Red skin, weird horns or other growths, something really monstrous. There's a lot I like about this possibility. Not only will it demonstrate her characterization of choosing Hero over her own humanity, it also sets up the Beast and Prince story to still wind up the same way. She will be choosing the Prince's life over maintaining her own form. That would then set Hero up to not be put off by her like the Beast Princess fears, but to reaffirm that he loves her anyway, a repeat of the struggle they faced in the middle of the series. Maybe she even flees at first like the Beast Princess did, but in this story, the Prince doesn't relent until he finds her again. But that could also develop in reverse. I mentioned the opportunity for them to have Zero Two play out Hero's role in Episode 15 by having her come into Strelizia's cockpit to free him from whatever transformation is going on. What if Hero changes enough in the meantime that he is suddenly the one in the role of the Beast Princess? What if he becomes something changed and monstrous and tries to flee from her? Or has to choose between her life and his own sense of humanity? I think in both situations here, each would choose the other's life, and each would also chase after the one who thought themselves too monstrous. That said, any situation in which Zero Two does something extraordinary to try to save Hero is going to run up against the problem of her injury. Does she overextend herself and become disabled or die in the process? Maybe not even for Hero's sake, but later on while trying to save others. I've mentioned multiple times in the past that Zero Two might be unable to become 100% human in physicality, but might metaphorically become human by a willingness to sacrifice for others. She could confirm her journey to humanity by prioritizing saving another over preserving herself. This would have a lot more meaning if it was for someone besides Hero. Um, a little more on that possibility in a minute. Now, beyond Zero Two's next step, what do we have? Calling the Verm fleet a reconnaissance fleet implies that we will have arrive a bigger, maybe badder fleet in the future. We already know that Strelizia Apath can take to the skies, and they have conveniently crafted a giant spear for it to use. I think the chance that we see some kind of space combat showdown between these forces is pretty high, regardless of who gains control of Apath. Um, there are also the mysteries that I mentioned early on, things we don't know still. I don't have anything really good for most of them, um, and the origin of Homo sapiens is one that I am interested in but don't want to guess at here. I will propose some possible reasons for the squad's aging and ailments and why we learned anything about that. Now, it could play out that the whole squad ages too quickly and dies out, leaving Hero and Zero Two to raise Kokoro's child in the New World, but I think our series tone isn't that bleak, 
and while death is still on the table, having the whole squad perish is pretty unlikely. So it may be that childbirth exhausts the rest of Kokoro because of the sickness and aging issues. This would leave the child with no mother, but the squad as an ad hoc family, who now become a family in truth. Potentially, Mitsuru could also perish somewhere along the way, um, but I did already mention how the opening of episode 18 could foreshadow him and the child surviving Kokoro. I'm quite certain that even if it's in an epilogue, we will get to see Kokoro's child by the end. Considering our power of names theme, whatever they choose to call the child will probably have great meaning. Not just the name, but the fact of having to come up with a name from scratch. A totally new idea to them. Now, if that happens, it will probably come all the way at the end. Um, that is not a next episode speculation. So, for the very last thing I do today, I want to float another possible last episode speculation. I think now this series will likely escalate into a conflict in space itself with Earth's forces against an additional Verm threat. They might be too much to overcome, even for someone piloting Strelesia Apath and armed with the giant spear. But maybe they can be overcome if the planet-destroying bomb is instead detonated in their midst. Perhaps it has to be dealt with anyway, fleet or no fleet, and someone has to get it off planet Earth and explode it safely in space. Who would sign up for this duty? Well, I'm reminded of the conversation between Hero and Zero Two as they rode the elevator. Zero Two's comment about not caring where they go so long as they're together might be quite literal. They also have this goal of seeing the outside world. What if they get their wish by seeing the entire outside world from orbit. There is some finality to fulfilling the goal in this way. By seeing literally all of the outside world like this, the goal is completely fulfilled. There's also the concept of flight as a constant symbol for gaining freedom. You could think of getting into actual orbit as such an extreme version of flight that it also represents the ultimate realization of flying free. Since it would take both of them to pilot a path into space, it even completes the gin bird reliance on one another for that flight. Having these things occur together would be a thematically appropriate way for them to exit the story. It would also allow fertility to return to Earth, something I have said is likely part of Hero's destined purpose, and would be a way of Zero Two proving her humanity by sacrificing for others, especially for the sake of someone besides Hero. It's bittersweet that they would die, of course, but if they do it together, willingly, and saving everyone else in the process? Both have claimed that they aren't afraid to die, and this would be a good death indeed. If something like this goes down, then I suspect we would skip to a future where Kokoro has given birth. Either she has had twins, or some other girl in their squad has also given birth or gotten pregnant during the time skip. Whichever way, they will have a little boy and a little girl named Hero and Zero Two. And we will, of course, get to meet these little ones during that fleeting season of the year when the cherry blossoms are in bloom. Title music by Russell J. Crowe. Other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearlyonred. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. 
Until next time, thanks for everything.